Welcome to Thrive Deeper, the show based on the Thrive Bible Reading Guides. This is an ongoing conversation about God's Word with Thrive author, Dr. Matthew Jacoby. Matt, welcome uh, back from overseas, actually. There's, from... there's part of me, I feel like half my brain is still in another time zone. So, <laughs> Well, I'll let out. you know at the end of this whether it is actually still in another time zone, but back from Kenya. Yeah, uh, back from a great trip uh, over in Kenya, and it's good to be back. It's great to see... Uh, an experienced church ministry in a completely different context, yeah. which we went over there and visited a sister church of, of One Hope, and um, great experience. Yeah, so, fantastic. but as I said, uh, you look out today because my brain is still in our, <laughs> another time zone. Well, because listeners, uh, Matt's brain's in another time zone. We'll make sure ours isn't. We're we're picking up our journey through the Book of John, and we're going to be kicking off from chapter sixteen and working our way to the end of the Gospel of John. Um, but Matt, before we jump in there, mm. uh, we've been recording another podcast, yeah. which has been really interesting, hasn't it? Our perspective series, <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a podcast that focuses on the Christian worldview, actually, mm-hmm. and, and it's a little bit more philosophical uh, in nature. It, it's also a little bit more directly uh, down the line of, of, of where my, probably my formal uh, expertise is. And um, this has been a great discussion, a very, I think, very pertinent discussion, Stu, yeah, uh, given, totally. uh, given our, our context. Uh, there's increasing complexity to our societal context mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. way that uh, that our culture tends to frame things and the way that we as Christians frame things. And so we talk about the sort of differences in framework between our culture and 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 the Christian faith. And so there's some really important things there. So I, I would I certainly would recommend uh, our listeners to go and check that out. Thrive Perspectives. Thrive Perspectives. So just do a search in your favorite podcast app, whether that's via Spotify or whatever app it is you use, Apple Podcasts. Do a search for Perspectives. You'll find it there. And uh, there's a whole series we've been working our way through on on Worldview. And I really encourage you to tune into that because yeah. it's been a, it's, it has been a really great conversation and really affirming in the faith, but also equipping in how we can have meaningful conversations with, with people in today's world, which yeah. is, you say, is more and more polarized mm. uh, around our faith and, and what it is that we believe. But Matt, get your half brain into gear because we're yep. gonna we're gonna pick up um, a really uh, important part. Not that there was an unimportant part, but a really key part of Gospel of John as we move into really the story of the lead up to Jesus. That's right. It's the passion narrative. It's been yeah, exactly great actually right. to read this over yeah. the Easter yeah, weekend. Yeah, actually, totally. I, uh, yeah. while I was away, I really delved into this and I just found this uh, so. F- uh, impacting in a very, very fresh way. We, it's, we, it's a big chunk, so we're not going to be able to go through every little bit of detail. Yeah, well, of this. we're going to pull out the main features yeah, of this. Uh, of course, we're we're picking this up in the last episode. We finished off with chapter fifteen, we so did. we're in the midst of this big conversation that Jesus has with his, with his disciples, which we don't get in the other gospels. This is the the beauty of this. At the Last Supper, he not only has an extended conversation with his disciples. There's extended teaching there, but uh, also we get his prayer yes. uh, for his disciples and for his future followers uh, as well. Mm-hmm. So this is really v- uh, valuable stuff. One of the key things that he is preparing his disciples for during the Last Supper is the fact that he is going away, and that's the way that he puts it, I'm going away. 
But he says, it's good for you that I go away, that I go return to the Father, because when I return to the Father, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is referred to as the, in Greek, it's the paraclete, it's the, the, the comforter or the advocate, or it's translated in different ways. As we said last time, it has these legal uh, connotations uh, to it. So it's, it's the advocate in the sense of our, our defender in, in that sense, uh, but the one also who's going to remind us of the things that Jesus, uh, Jesus uh, wants to teach us, mm. uh, the one who guides us and counsels us, so also our counsellor. I mean, there's so many aspects yes. to this. Now, the interesting thing, Stu, is in chapter 16, we see him describe the role of the Holy Spirit in terms of the prosecution. Man, this is yeah. this is a really interesting one because he's not only the defense, but he's also the prosecution. prosecution. Mm. And... And here Jesus uh, says in verse 8, in, in actually verse 7, he says, I tell you the truth is for your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then he says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness and judgment. And so the, the idea is that uh, he is going to actually bring the need, people's need to the surface. This isn't about him uh, condemning people, but actually making them see. So they're going to go out with the good news about what Jesus has done for them. Uh, but there is this reliance on the Holy Spirit to actually uncover the need. And so the Holy Spirit comes and brings this convicting uh, ministry. Now, it's interesting when we think of the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives, you know, we tend to think of, I guess the, the you know the strength that he brings and the empowerment and you know maybe we think of the you know the gifts of the spirit and this sort of thing but actually initially the, one of the initial works of the holy spirit is actually to convict us of where mm. we go wrong yeah and so you know I think this is a really important thing to remember if we open our hearts to face our failure often empowerment actually begins there it begins mm. in that place of deep humility you yeah. know and uh, and this is one of the primary things the Holy Spirit wants to do, uncovers the wound before he heals the wound yeah. uh, and then before he empowers us. So, And even more than that, that's the, the sort of um, the countercultural, because because often we just lean on our own natural instinct about things. It's not just about conviction, but also about leading and guiding. And sometimes the thing that we think would be the most natural thing to do, in fact, the Holy Spirit says, no, no, I actually want you to do that. Instead. That's right. So this whole sense of guidance <clears throat> and direction and yeah. showing us the path that he wants us That's to do. That's right. Yeah. And we see this because, in a sense, the Holy Spirit is – you know, as, as the creed says, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And Paul refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. And so there's this sense in which the Holy Spirit continues the ministry of Jesus. And when you look at the ministry of Jesus, actually, remember, you know, him saying, I have come to seek and to save the lost. And, you know, on the other uh, hand, it was the Pharisees, the people that thought that they were already righteous, that really struggled to accept, in fact, yeah. rejected the ministry of Jesus. Yes. And so what Jesus was trying to help people to understand was their need for salvation. And so, you know, this ministry of the Holy Spirit, to resist the Holy Spirit is to be unwilling to face your failure. And that was the big problem with the, with the Pharisees, that they thought that they were, that they'd fixed themselves up. You know, they yeah. followed the law, we've fixed ourselves up. Actually, all that was was a moralistic or a, a religious dressing yeah. over the wound. Yeah. You know, uh, it was, you know, something like a Band-Aid over the wound. And Jesus was trying to rip off the Band-Aid uh, and expose the wound, but they weren't willing because it's painful to rip yes. off a Band-Aid. So, and, and it's even more painful to see the wound that, that you have. 
so this is a key aspect uh, of the Holy Spirit. And uh, may I say to Stu, uh, you know, revival really begins with us facing our need, mm. the depths, the very depths of our need, and it it begins with that conviction of sin, and and that's always been the case. And I know in my own life, the greatest seasons of spiritual revival that I've been through have begun with me allowing the Holy Spirit to convict me and lay things bare, things that I need to see about myself, things that God wants to deal with and bring healing into. So that's a really uh, important point there. Moving into the rest of this prayer, one of the things that I found interesting about this, Stu, is the repetition. There's a repetition of Jesus' referral to prayer and the fact that if because of course he's he's leaving them and so he puts a lot of emphasis on you know if you pray in my name you will receive whatever you ask for now of course there's there's a context to this it's not like a I voucher wanna... <laughs> for anything that you ever wanted ever uh, we've already seen this in chapter 14 verse 14 he says if you ask me anything in my name i will do it but then as we pointed out in chapter 15 uh it's remain in me and ask whatever you you know yeah. th- so the uh, you know prayer is to be the result of remaining in Jesus and Jesus remaining in us. Um, and so this is essentially pointing to a kind of prayer that is inspired by the presence of the Holy Spirit yeah. in our lives. This is us sharing the desires of God and, and praying and, out of those uh, those. And desires. also remembering that the name, in, in the context of those days, name was much more about the character of the person or being consistent with the character yeah. of the person rather than just in Jesus' name, therefore I have it. It's like in Jesus' name really meant consistent. Consistent with Jesus's character and purposes and will. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, even more than that, actually, to pray in Jesus' name means to pray that that you pray in. You you actually are not representing your own desires. So if I if I go somewhere and and I go in your name, it's mean I'm not I'm not advocating for me. I'm it's it's for you. You know, I'm actually representing you. So in when we to do anything or. To pray, certainly to pray in Jesus' name, is actually uh, to pray the very the desires of Christ for us and for the world, which of course is best. What's best anyway? But it also points to the effectiveness of of prayer because it's not it's not just us. Actually, when I say I'm praying this in Jesus' name, it's this is it's not just because I want this. You know? Yeah, it's a powerful appeal because it means uh, I'm praying the very will of Christ, but I'm also praying in a sense clothed with, with Christ's authority and Christ's righteousness. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, and of course to be able to pray and to be able to represent Christ or to be able to represent me or anyone else, you need to know, you need to stay close enough to that person yeah. to know what it is. Yeah, that, that's right. That they want. So he says down in verse 23 of chapter 16, truly, yeah. truly, I say to you. And again, this is when he puts that, uh, that prefix on to these, these statements, it means this is really important. So remember this. He says, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Mm. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. Yeah. So notice the emphasis there, in my name, yeah. you're asking uh, in my name. It's not about, it's not about you. Mm. This is all in the context of him preparing them for their ministry, right? Yeah. This is not, you know, that's the context. And them abiding in him. And him, and them abiding in him, absolutely. So he, he points out to them, it's going to be a hard road ahead. Yeah. He, he's, certainly, he's certainly preparing them for that. He says in verse 33, I've said these things to you so that you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And, and so he's saying, I'm saying this 
so that you can have peace in the midst of your tribulation. It's not that that it's going to be a smooth ride. No, it's going to be a rough ride. But like when they were in the storm and Jesus is asleep in the boat, you're going to have rest and peace in the midst of that tribulation. But it's still, you know, it's still going to be hard. Yeah. It's going to be a hard time ahead. And he points out that he's overcome the world, which basically means that everything that God wants to do through you is not it's that's not going to be thwarted my whatever tribulation you receive it is not going to thwart uh the path ahead in my purpose yeah. and of course when we look at the history that follows from yes. this with this amazing victory that these i mean essentially 12 you know 12 guys uh 11 and they add another, you know just incredible victory in terms of the spread of the Christian faith throughout suffering. the Roman Empire, through suffering and yeah. incredible resistance, man, yeah. it's uh, it's it's quite it's quite a miracle. But it was the thing that Jesus prayed, and and this is where we get to in chapter seventeen. Uh, we have this wonderful prayer, which is essentially it's described as Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's interceding first for his disciples, and then for, uh, as he says, everyone that will believe through their through their witness. It's interesting in in verse. Six, uh, he says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me uh, out of the world. He's talking to the people who you gave me out of the world. I've manifested your name to them. There's a sense in which this is important because it's a major theme in John. He's always pointing, in a sense, to the divinity of Christ, to the sense in which Jesus reveals who God is. This is Jesus shows us who God is. And that's what it means that's what he means when he says, I've revealed your name. To speak of the name of God is to speak of who God is. It's it's about the character yeah. uh, of God. The big emphasis, Stu, in his prayer, did you pick this up? Uh, about belief, that they believed who he was and who sent him. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But then there's also this emphasis on them being united. Yes. This is so prominent in his prayer you know, he knows that one of the biggest problems to face the church, I mean, it's not going to be the external threats that are going to destroy the church. Certainly he prays uh, for them, you know, as they are about to face that. But the biggest threat isn't the external persecution. The biggest threat is always going to be internal division. And I th- this is a point really worth remembering. Mm. And I remember this, I remember this whenever there's a lot of division within the church, particularly about like external things going on in the world and how we, you know, we've got to protect ourselves against all these things. And we all have different ways. And the irony can be sometimes we end up being divided over- How to protect ourselves. Yeah, how to protect ourselves. <laughs> and actually, it's division itself yeah. that is the most destructive thing. And so, this is really the big theme, What, what you know, certainly a major theme in this prayer. First think- of yeah, I think one of the dangers with that, though, is we tend to only think of that from a corporate point of view. Um, but I think there's an individual personal responsibility <clears throat> yeah. to be right with our yeah. brothers and sisters as well. Yeah, and so good. to make sure that relationally we're not we're, – we're, we're doing our best to love and respect and, and find that unity with one-on-one with each other because yeah. then that outflows corporately. And certainly that's his when – he, when his prayer moves on to, uh, you know, the church as a whole yeah. – you know, he says in verse 21 that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, uh, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This doesn't, by the way, because uh, it might be 
someone might ask, what about all the denom- all the different denominations? Does that mean that Jesus, you know, th- this certainly is a something that perhaps uh, someone of a Catholic ba- background, this is a common critique of the Protestant movement from a Catholic point of view. Well, you know, look at all the denominations and it's all divided and that's not what Jesus prayed for. But actually, diversity isn't division necessarily. Yes. Unity doesn't mean we have to have one person ruling over the whole thing. Uh, and essentially what you got with the Protestant movement was sort of freedom of worship, you know, different groups in different places. Yes, they did do things. We, we don't all have to do things in exactly, exactly the, the same, same way. way. And I, I think that's an important point. So, and, and I, you know, I think, um, yes, there is, there's a lot of diversity within the Christian movement, but actually, you know, on the whole, there is a lot of there. There's you know remarkable unity. I think considering all of that, mm. you know, particularly within, uh, and and I think I'm thinking within the um, sort of evangelical Protestant movement. There's a lot of diversity there, and uh, uh, yet I I see you know I see a remarkable amount of unity. Yeah. The diversity is well. not around the centrality of who Christ was or what he did. The diversity is around other things that are perhaps yeah, less, that's right. yeah. less of an issue. Uh, that's right. You know, it's more stylistic, for want of a better yeah. word, than it is around the actual centrality of who Christ is. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. So I, I think that's a, a good point to, um, yeah, to, to make. Absolutely. So moving into we, we move now into you know the passion narrative, and of mm-hmm. course, Stu, this begins in the uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. The garden was probably a place, the Garden of Gethsemane was probably a place where Jesus often met uh, with his disciples. It was probably a private walled, a private walled garden, which means that it was difficult. He was therefore difficult to find. Um, You're talking about a situation where there were probably lots of, particularly in the vicinity of Jerusalem, lots of smaller allotments uh, with olive trees and and so forth that were walled. And so... He was obviously the person that owned that garden. Was obviously, um, you know, friendly to their cause and uh, allowed them to use that uh, as a place to sort of take some kind of refuge. So it was a fairly private place, probably walled, as I said. And so it would have been difficult to find. Of course, Judas knew this. Because Judas knew where yeah. he could be found. Yeah. And and so Judas comes at night with this detachment of soldiers, Roman soldiers, but also temple, um, temple officials guards. come, yep. so temple guards come. Mm. You know, this is a way, because of course Jesus has quite the following and they don't want to stir up uh, any problems here. Yeah. So they actually need to find him at night. They can't just grab him in the temple mm. in, you know, in, in public because that's going to cause up a it's going to cause a massive stir. So they have to find him at night. Judas is is you know knows where he's going to be, so uh, Judas leads them uh, right to where he is. Mm. Interesting that when they come and say they ask uh, Jesus asks them whom do you seek and they say we've come for Jesus of Nazareth and Jesus says to them basically in Greek it's I am. You know, mm. so again, you know John is point and and actually he repeats this uh he said, uh, and, and he says, but when he says, I am, uh, sorry, John repeats this. He says, when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Yeah. This yeah. is actually a common response to a revelation of God. And, and I think John is pointing this out. It's often a sign that you, you're being confronted by divinity, the fact that you would fall back uh, on the ground. This is, of course, when Peter thinks it wise to pull out his sword yes. <laughs> as they go to seize Jesus uh, following that. 
he pulls out his sword and he cuts off the, 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 the high, high priest servants' yeah. uh, ears. Uh, this guy's probably a, a priest as well. He's, he's a Levite and uh, and probably a priest as well. Now, this actually renders him unfit for service in the temple. If you have any kind of right. uh, a blemish, uh, so for example, yeah. losing an ear would render you unfit for service in mm. the uh, in the temple. So this is actually this does more than just physical damage yeah, uh, to right. this guy. Elsewhere, we, we you know we see that Jesus actually heals in Luke's uh, gospel. I yeah, think in Luke's too. gospel, that he actually heals the the servant, mm. and and that. You know, I mean, I know we're talking about John, but that in Luke's gospel is significant because he, Jesus renders him ceremonially clean clean and fit for service again through that act yeah. of healing. Yeah. And of course, he rebukes Peter. It's Peter, come on, we're not, this is, this is not what we do. Peter still, he doesn't quite get what's going on here. No. So, you know, he pulls out this sword. Some people, you know, some commentators think that he does this on purpose to render, that he cuts off his ear on purpose. How you could, you'd have to be, You'd have to be a pretty accurate swing yeah. Yeah, to, to do that. I think actually more likely he's actually trying, trying to, to kill, kill this guy. guy. I mean, yep. he's going for his head, yep. you know. Yep. So, man, Peter's out f- uh, for a killing here. Yeah. I mean, this is serious stuff. So so first he's taken to a guy called Annas. Now, Annas was the previous high priest. Yes. Um, so uh, Annas and, um, and Caiaphas are related. related. But Annas mm. still has this... Sort of moral authority, yeah. yeah. So he he wants to talk to Jesus first, and then he gives him over to uh, to, to to Caiaphas. So that's why you go from Annas to Caiaphas. Yeah. Uh, there, it's interesting that at this point, because he's taken into this what seems to be a compound, where probably both Caiaphas and Annas live. They're probably living in the same uh, sort of walled compound. The houses uh, were, were enclosed and probably uh, were Walls. ringed. Uh, yeah, yeah, ringed a. Uh, you know, courtyard in the middle. Yeah. So um, it seems it looks like John actually has uh, some. Th- there's reason to believe that John's family has some kind of standing, such that he seems to be able to get. John seems to be able to gain access uh, to this yes. uh, courtyard because um, Peter, Peter can't doesn't. really get into it yeah. until John c- comes along and and somehow enables him to get in. Uh, go as Peter goes in, a servant girl says, "Oh, hang on, you, aren't you?" It says to Peter, "Aren't you one of one his of his, uh, one of his disciples?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, he says, "No, no, I'm no, no I'm not." Uh, now, you know, I mean, the, 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 that first time it could have been just, "I just don't want to make a, a fuss of this," you know, because he just wants to get in there. But the interesting thing uh, was that. There's a statement made in verse 18. It says, Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And the language there is is very e- explicit. It's curious, actually. You know, he was standing with them. So there's this sense which Peter found him, essentially finds himself, and this is the importance of the language, standing with the enemies of Jesus. And the idea of... of Circling a fire has this sense of sort of fellowship, and yeah, I, yeah. I'm 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 having communion with these people now. So yeah. you know he's warming himself by their fight. There's something significant uh, about this. So John sort of goes to and from. He goes from what's happening to Jesus to Peter, and then back to what's happening uh, to, to Jesus. Jesus. And so you get 
you know, the high priest questioning Jesus. And, and, and Jesus replies, look, look, everything I've done out in the open, I'm not trying to, I, I'm not hiding here. Mm-hmm. I've never hidden from you. Uh, you can ask anyone what I've done and what I've taught. This is, uh, you know, alluding to the fact that there are plenty of witnesses. So, you, you, you're going to be hard pressed to find anything in me actually that to convict me by, um, and of course that's that's John's purpose is to show actually how many witnesses there were to the innocence uh, of Jesus. This is a big theme in the Passion narratives. Yeah. This is an innocent man who is uh, who is sent to his death uh, by these people. Now uh, we jump back then to to the third denial uh, of Peter. Just before you jump there, the fact that the high priest actually slapped Jesus when he said, you know, I've, I've done, ask the others yeah. what I've said. <clears throat> you know, hitting anyone on the head or the face was pretty full on in those, culturally in those yeah, days. Yeah, and, and actually against their law. Exactly. As well. Yeah, so that you, you, you weren't meant to, not in the course of a trial mm, uh, in any right. case. So quite a significant thing there. Yeah, and you can understand the rule for that because you can't mistreat but to extract a, a confession, confession or something. Yeah. So... And this is what we see all along here, that they're breaking their own laws while trying to convict Jesus, of, who was essentially innocent of breaking the law. Exactly. Uh, it, to it turns back, obviously, to Peter and his third, uh, third denial and, you know, the rooster crows. And, um, and we just get that short section before we go back to, the, to Jesus being taken before Pilate. Now, uh, he goes to the governor's uh, headquarters uh, but the Jewish people won't go in. And yeah. this is another clean, interesting detail, yeah. yeah, because uh, they're about to they, – they need to to celebrate the Passover. So they don't want to be defiled. They don't want to become ceremonially yeah, unclean. Yeah. Um, now, the irony here, and John is explicit about pointing this out, is that they are actually sacrificing the Passover lamb. Remember, John had said at the beginning of John's gospel, John the Baptist has said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? Yes. So they are about to kill the true Passover lamb, mm. right? Mm. And yet they're more worried about being ceremonially unclean by going into a the house of a Gentile. Mm. So there's an irony here uh, that then is... Um, is accentuated by Pilate's questioning. You know, he he says, "There's no, this guy's done absolutely nothing wrong." Like, mm-hmm. And I mean, they have to, you know, trump up this charge about him being, you know, claiming to be a king and so forth. Yeah, which that's the best that they can do. You know, well, they then appeal to the to really to the Jewish priests to kind of go, "This man's putting himself," you know, saying that he's the king, and and so then they play this very kind of tactical strategy and say, well, the only king we have is the Roman is, king, not not this which is so Which is, exactly. is the epitome of hypocrisy exactly because right. one of the things that Jesus spent so much of his ministry saying is, I have not come to challenge the political authorities politically, right? Yes. I mean, that was so much of his ministry spent making that very point, whereas the Pharisees, actually, they did want to, they did resent the the tyranny of Rome, and they did resent Caesar, and they did want to see uh, the Romans cast out of the land, right? So, you know, they're they accusing had, Jesus of the very thing that they're guilty yeah, of. But they also had a vested interest because the Romans had vested in them quite a lot of power. The only thing they really couldn't do well, was, was, you know, capital punishment. Well, uh, it was it was the sad it was the, actually sad the Sadducees Caesar, right? that had the power. Yes, in terms of political power. So this was actually a point of. Uh, tension between Pharisees and Sadducees. Sadducees. Pharisees were anti-Rome, uh, but the Sadducees were pro-Rome because Rome really bolstered their power. There was yeah. there were significant tensions okay. between Pharisees and Sadduc- Sadducees, and that was one of the uh, you know one of the markers. 
you know, the accusation uh, here, as I said, is really quite hypocritical. Mm. And yet it's all they can uh, pull out against, uh, you know, against Jesus. Now, Jesus doesn't deny this when Pilate questions him about this. He doesn't deny being a king, but he makes very explicit, my kingdom is not of this world. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm no threat uh, to Caesar here in this sense. In fact, he says in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might uh, not be delivered over the Jews. It's so he says, look, if I'm leading a revolt against Rome, where are my soldiers? Yes. Like, where yeah. are they? You yeah. know? Uh, now, the interesting thing about that is that Peter did pull out the sword at one point. Yes. Uh, so... You know, I mean, you can see why Jesus rebukes him because Jesus wants to be able to make this point. You know, this isn't a violent revolution. This isn't a violent uprising. Mm. So, but but certainly by this stage, Pilate can see there's no soldiers here. Mm. So again, the emphasis on the innocence uh, of Jesus, innocent of the charge. Um, and then in, verse thirty-eight, <clears throat> that big question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Pilate. I mean, he puts it back on on Pilate. You know, for this purpose I was born. I yeah. was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, this is at this stage. You know, he's putting, he's getting close to the bone for Pilate. Like, mm. what about you, Pilate? Pilate does this classic philosophical evasion. You know, yes. because in 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 Greek. That Greco-Roman culture with all the philosophical background, there's lots of talk about truth, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, he evades he evades this moment with this classic abstract philosophical question. Well, what is truth anyway? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's hard to know whether it's a bit sarcastic as well, but anyway. There, there, there are probably a couple of reasons for this. I think Pilate is quite exhausted. There's, there's reason yeah, uh, to see some exasperation, actually, yeah. with the Jewish people by this point. See. He's faced so many different factions, uh, even amongst the Jewish people. They would have been the they were the, the biggest headache to to rule over, yeah. uh, you know. And Pilate, by this stage, he initially uh, as governor, he'd been quite heavy handed, and he'd really been, um, you know, castigated quite heavily uh, by his by the authorities and by Caesar. Mm. So he he was actually in danger, and in the end, actually, he was deposed and sent into exile because he didn't do a good job. I mean, these governors were meant to keep the peace, right? Right. The, the, the Romans just oh, would you just keep go there the, and just for goodness' sake keep, keep the, the peace, peace and keep the taxes coming. That were the two things. Yeah. Uh, keep the peace, keep the taxes coming. That were the main. It's like you got two jobs here. Mm. And, uh, you know, they relied on the Jewish tax collectors to extract the money. And, and that was an easier equation because the Jewish tax collectors were able to enrich themselves in the process. But keeping the peace was a was an absolute headache. And yeah. so he had to. And this is why actually it goes uh, where it goes, that Pilate has to find a shrewd way of actually giving in to their demands because they're going to whip up the crowd. He, this yeah. becomes very evident. Like, if you don't do this, and this is where they threaten him, if you're not a friend of Caesar's if you, because this guy's claimed to be a king. Yes. Right? So they're threatening him. And then at the same time, you know, they're going to whip up the crowd mm. uh, and demand Jesus be crucified. Because but, under Roman law, they couldn't make that call, the Jewish. <clears throat> no, that's right. Neither yeah. the Sadducees, and obviously not the Pharisees, but yeah. the Sadducees, even with all their power, they could So it yeah. had to be Pilate. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And and so Pilate, in a sense, is cornered here because he cannot risk any uh, unrest with the Jewish people at this stage. So so And and the 
Pharisees and Sadducees, they know that they've got him cornered, right? They know that they've got him in a, mm. in a sense uh, where they want him. And so they're able to sort of force his hand in this sense by whipping up the crowd and demanding that he be crucified. So what Pilate does is he sends Jesus off. off. Well, first of all, he, he offers an, a substitute, yeah, really. He, he offers the substitute, which is which was the custom uh, that, and again, this is part of the Romans trying to appease the Jewish people is that they would release uh, a prisoner, generally someone who uh, had stood up against the Romans, you know, and, and, and Barabbas was, I mean, English translations uh, often say that Barabbas was a robber. Actually, he was something more like an insurrectionist. Revolutionary, yeah. Because these, these insurrectionists against the Romans would often, they would rob, one of the main things that they would do is that they would rob supply chains, Roman supply chains, right, to disrupt uh, the uh, you know the Roman hold in in Judea. So uh, so he's an insurrectionist. He's a revolutionary, right? And and this is interesting because the very thing that Jesus wouldn't do, the kind of leader that he wouldn't be, right? Which is which is what the disciples struggled so much with, and also even you know I mean this is what a lot of people hoped he would be that he would lead this revolt against the Romans and and you know essentially right. lead yeah. something like another Maccabean revolt. Okay. Yeah. You know that that's where his popularity waned when it became clear that he wasn't going to be this that. kind of leader. So, you know, when Pilate puts him up, you know, next to Barabbas, said, "Which of these two do you want?" Well, of course, they and probably at the, um, you know, the urging of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they choose Barabbas instead mm-hmm. of Jesus. I mean, Barabbas isn't as much of a threat to their authority uh, as Jesus was. By the way, the Sadducees have to be desperate because the Sadducees weren't in. They they were. They were very much against insurrection. Yeah. So the the sorry the said did I say the Sadducees? Yeah. yeah the, the Sadducees, Sadducees yeah. Um, would not have liked Barabbas. They would have been quite <clears throat> happy for the Barabbas types to be Staying crucified. Yeah. Um, probably the that the, the two robbers that were crucified with Jesus in the end they would have been his mates, his uh, co-conspirators probably. Right. So. There were probably there were there were the three people on the crosses were going to be Barabbas and these other two robbers. They were all insurrectionists, but Barabbas is set free, and so Jesus essentially takes Barabbas's place on those three crosses. Mm. Um, There's so much in that too. Just before, I, yeah. I don't want to. Do oh, too I know. Much on it. There's yeah. so much in just that whole, you know, the choice the people had to make between this or that. Yeah. You know, which is the choice we have to make, and even to some degree, the church. You know, are we going to be the revolutionists or, and try to take the world by? you know, our own kind of yeah. moral high ground or are we actually going to love people into the kingdom? Yeah. You know, um, there's just so much in yeah. that little choice that had to be made at that moment. You know, Yeah, that's right. And this people. is a climactic points in yeah. the point in the text. And at climactic points, things are polarized. And one of the things that God wants to polarize is choice. Mm. Uh, this is what you see in Genesis chapter two. It's polarizing the point that the choice, which is what the two trees yes. uh, are, are this uh, almost this kind of sacramental moment of of physical things by which we make a choice. choice. You know, will you eat from the tree of life or will you transgress and eat from the tree, you know, knowledge yeah. of good and evil? And so at this point, you've almost got the two trees again. Is it Jesus, the tree of life, yes. or, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Is, is it mm. Jesus or Barabbas? Mm. So you have this two trees in the garden kind of moment here, you know, which is, again, you know, really significant. So Pilate, again, he doesn't want Jesus to be be crucified, so he says, "Okay, so so it's Jesus, right? We're going to punish Jesus instead of Barabbas. Barabbas is set free now. So what he does, he sends Jesus to get flogged, 
And not just there are three levels of flogging, um, uh, three levels of seriousness. The, the the highest level of flogging, a lot of people died from that. It yeah. was essentially flogged to death. It was something yeah. close to being skinned alive, actually. Mm. It was terrible, terrible mm. uh, kind of flogging. And I think he thinks, look, if Jesus is flogged in this way and 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 still lives through this, maybe that'll appease the maybe crowd. that'll appease them when I bring bring him back up, you know, in in that state, right? So, mm. so he has Jesus flogged, you know, and then he brings them back back to this question of, are you do you really want this man instead of Barabbas? You know, because uh, I can find no reason. Yeah, yeah. Again, yeah, uh, but it says down in verse twelve um, of what chapter are we in? Of 19. Chapter nineteen. Yeah. The it says the Jews cried out, "If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend." Everyone who makes himself a king uh, opposes Caesar. I mean, they're really, you know, you know, they're really pushing for this now, and and they even say, because Pilate says to them, "Shall I crucify your king?" And the chief priests answered, "We have no king but Caesar." Yes. I mean, this is you know, this is so this is so hypocritical, uh, you know, for them to say this. This really, this statement is really against the key tenet of their faith. They should be saying, "We have no king but, but Yahweh," yeah. and this, this in a you know, in a sense, was this is political expediency. Yeah, this is political expediency. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so he sent he sent to be crucified. I mean, I, I I mean, I did some some more research into crucifixion again, I, and I actually. I, I don't even want to mention the details of it because no, it, it honestly, I, I in, in summary, Stu. I, th- I can barely think of another punishment ever that existed that was crueler than this punishment. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was mm-hmm. a terrible, terrible uh, thing to happen to anyone. And and I and I, you know, I asked the question when I read this: Why this? It's like this is yeah. this is human depravity. This is human torture and depravity at its absolute worst. But see, this is this is the significance of it. Is that Jesus suffers the worst? He, he he suffers the worst that a human that that human beings did to another human being. Because it's not just the torture. The thing about uh, crucifixion was not just the prolonged and prolonged is the name of the game. Prolonged torture that was involved in this, but it was the shaming and the exposure. It was to degrade another a, a human being. Yeah. And this goes so much against everything. You know, the high dignity and sacredness of human life. Essentially, crucifixion just degrades this to, to in the highest degree. Yeah. So, and Jesus suffers this, you know, uh, the one who is God incarnate suffers this level of degradation, mm. uh, not to mention, uh, you know, physical torture. You know, the details uh, around this, you know, um, are, are fairly well known, Stu. And John kind of alludes to the fact of how many of the prophecies of Jesus are fulfilled through even just this process of the passion. You yeah. Know, um, he, yeah. He talks about how the, the various prophecies um, of, of the Messiah are fulfilled. That's right. Yeah. And there's a little detail that I love here, Stu, in verse 26 uh, of chapter 19. 19. Uh, when Jesus saw his mother, it says, and, his dis- and the disciple whom he loved, which is John, mm. standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Mm-hmm. So in this beautiful moment, even on the cross, Jesus is thinking of his provision as a son for his mother, his earthly yeah. mother. What a, you know, mm-hmm. uh, what a moment. 
Jesus dies, uh, you know, on the cross, declaring it is finished. Uh, you know, amazing declaration. So much has finished. Essentially, you know, death has finished. Death has been uh, conquered. Sin has been conquered. You know, it is finished. There's so much in those uh, three words. And uh, the fact that he gave up his spirit. In other <clears throat> words, it was his choice. Yeah. At that moment. Yeah, that's right. To let himself. They need that. They need to. The Romans need to make sure, though, that yes. he's uh, he's dead. And John actually underscores this because he wants he wants it to be known that Jesus really did die. He didn't just swoon, or he didn't just go unconscious, or yep. whatever. You know, lest anyone think that that's uh, that that mm. could have been the case, and that he's you know uh, they went around to break the bones of the they. Because essentially, when they broke their legs, they wouldn't be able to hold themselves up, and so they would asphyxiate to death. Yeah, yeah. Uh, gory. gory details there. But mm. but Jesus had already died, and yet, but they, to make sure, they thrust a spear up through his side, right into his heart. That was the uh, through under the rib cage, right into mm. the heart, which mm. is where um, why the flow of blood, uh, blood and water. And water. Yeah. Um, so, and of course, you know, there was a bit of a rush <clears throat> because Passover was coming. That was now. Oh yeah, they had. The morning, to, that's right. So they had to get these people off yeah. the crosses before. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and here actually we see some people come out of the woodwork. Uh, so w- here we see Nicodemus again. Yes, uh, Joseph of, of Arimathea. Yeah. You know that they were they were Pharisees uh, who actually did not really publicly, mm. um, kind of secretly, but you know they did. And and for Joseph of Arimathea, you know, to give Jesus his tomb. I mean, that was reasonably public declaration. I mean. Yeah. Uh, I think he would have done that quietly, but you know, there's a bit of a risk involved uh, here. So this would have been uh, a tomb, a, a, a sort of rich person's tomb, which would have been a tomb cut out of a rock uh, with a big circular stone, probably taller than me. I've seen these uh, these stones um, yeah. uh, over in in Israel, and they're even the smaller ones. There's no way that I mean they're mass they're, they're yeah. still massive and, yeah. and you know it's quite something to move and it, and and they move them over the you know the, the door of the tomb mm. so you can only move the stone from the outside you can't move, move the stone from, the uh, from certainly from yeah. the inside obviously sort of rolls across the opening and <clears throat> yeah that's right overlaps um, yeah so they bind up the uh, the body uh, with cloths and they uh, you know use these spices and aromatics to disguise the smell of of decomposition. Um, you know they're going to wrap the body up here, um, which is going to be important for what happens on on the resurrection. Mm. So we we get no information about Saturday. So that's Friday night. Uh, there's no information uh, about Saturday. That's the Sabbath. Uh, they uh, observe the Sabbath, but on the Sunday morning. Now remember, Sunday is set, begins on Saturday night, essentially. You yeah, know, so probably <laughs> before you know they leave, they set out while it's still dark uh, to go to the tomb. And they, you know, they, they get there at sunrise, but they find, of course, the tomb empty. And the interesting thing here is that the grave clothes uh, are still have been left behind, and the face, the, the face cloth, is folded up. Yes, actually, neatly. Now, yeah. now, John points this out because he wants to also make it clear that this wasn't, this isn't grave robbery. Grave robbers don't leave the cloth folded up. Uh, in fact, grave robbers, you know, wouldn't. Leave the grave clothes there. I mean, it, it's actually going to take quite some time to unwrap a body. Uh, they would just take the body, but right. actually, the grave clothes are still sitting there. And part of the grave clothes, the face mm. uh, shroud, 
is uh, is actually sitting there nicely folded up. Thank Which you also very much. speaks very much of physical resurrection as well, because absolutely, yeah. yeah. So again, John is pointing to something uh, remarkable here. Uh, so that's verse six. It says he saw the linen clothes lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, uh, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. That's given a lot of space there. This is there's something remarkable here. This doesn't look like grave robbery or uh, remember because remember Lazarus came out still with the with the grave clothes uh, on, um, but there's something miraculous here because Jesus. I mean, again, a body can't unwrap itself. So, again, there's something really, uh, really remarkable here. And that's why, John, for, for those who know uh, about this embalming process, they're thinking, what, the grave? They're just lying there. And the face cloth, you know, th- that yeah. would have said a lot to yes. audiences in yeah, those yeah. days who were familiar with the customs. Um, of course, then Jesus uh, appears to uh, Mary Magdalene. Jo- John and uh, Peter go to the tomb. They go back away from the tomb. Mary stays there. While she's weeping, Jesus appears to her. She doesn't reckon, recognize him uh, straight first, away. But yeah. when he says, uh, it's a beautiful moment where yeah. he says, Mary, and she uh, recognizes him and, and she clings to him, actually. And he says, do not cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. This is interesting because he's essentially saying, don't don't hold on to this. I, I'm going to be closer to you when I go to the Father. You know, uh, I actually, when I go to the Father, Going back to what he said in chapters 14 to 16, when I go to the fire, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and I'm going to cling to you. Then we have these accounts of Jesus appearing in the room with the doors locked. So John is pointing out there's something, this is not a ghost. Uh, There's a couple of things here. Jesus is not a ghost. Um, That's not what resurrection meant, the language of resurrection. Even some people today say, oh, it was just a ghost or it was like Jesus' spirit. It wasn't a physical. No, no, that's not what the word resurrection means. Mm. Um, N.T. Wright's major work on the resurrection, it's called The Resurrection of the Son of God. It's it's the most comprehensive historical defense of and explanation of the, the, the resurrection. resurrection. And he goes to great lengths to show that resurrection did not mean, like people believed in ghosts and, and apparitions and appearances, mm. but they did not use the word resurrection. There was something remarkable that happened to Jesus that was not just an apparition or a vision or a ghost. Mm. Uh, it was physical. So on the one hand, he's got a physical body because he invites Thomas you know, there to actually exactly. touch his body. I mean, and later on, of course, he's eating as well. Yes. So it's a physical body. And yet he can come into a locked room without he can come into a locked room without opening, opening the door. The door. And, yeah. I mean, you know, because remember. Paul talks about Jesus as the first fruits of those who are raised from the dead. Yeah. So he says, we will receive resurrection bodies like Jesus, right. essentially. Yeah. So Thomas, of course, just can't believe it until he can touch. He, Th- Thomas could believe that they saw a ghost or an apparition. That was believable in those days. Yeah. What he can't believe is that Jesus has been raised from, from the, the dead. dead. You know, even though, uh, even though Lazarus has, has been uh, w- was raised from the dead, uh, there's something else going on here. And, and, Thomas finds it it's difficult to believe, and so when Jesus appears to him and invites him to touch mm. his wounds, mm. Thomas famously says, "My Lord and my God." I mean, then then he thinks, and the reason he says this is because Jesus said that this would happen, and you know, for Jesus to be able to have this kind of 
authority even over death itself. There's there's nothing else to say for Thomas than this is the very incarnation of God. So the appearances are intermittent after this. It's not, Jesus isn't just with them all the no, time. Right. He's appearing to them very much intermittently um, uh, during this time. And one of the times is uh, while they're fishing. Um, now, some people say, well, they've gone back, they've given up, you know, the, and, and they've gone back to fishing. No, no. They need to Fish, eat. Yeah, they still need to eat, and they, they probably need to make enough. some money, right? Yeah. So they still went back uh, to fishing every now and again. So they've gone back to fishing, uh, and Jesus appears to them on the shore. They haven't caught uh, anything. This alludes back to a previous miracle that yes, had happened. very early on. Uh, a yeah. miracle after which Jesus said, I'm going to make you fishers of men, right? Yeah. So they're catching no fish, and again Jesus says, cast the nets in again, which they do, yeah. and they catch this enormous uh, catch of fish. And again, this is a, it's not just a miracle, it's a sign, because yes. he... And it's the sign that precedes what is essentially the reinstatement of Peter and the calling of Peter, which is what follows. Peter, when he recognizes Jesus, he you know uh, folds up his garment, jumps uh, into the water. They're about probably uh, fifty meters from the shore, so he's um, uh, so he you know he wades into Jesus, and then you have this. And again, only John uh, records this, but this is uh, this is essentially the the reinstatement of Peter as the leader, essentially. And Jesus says uh, to Peter, do you love me more than these? Like, do you love me more than anyone else, essentially? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, yes, Lord, you know you know that I love you. And, it's, and so you get this three-time repetition. He asks him three times, do you love me? And each time he says, uh, well, he says, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. So three times he asks him, corresponding with the three, three denials. denials. Yeah. Uh, so again, this is, you know, his love covers a multitude of sins. Do you love me three times? And you get this threefold repetition of you you now are the shepherd yeah. uh, of my people. You're the, you're the chief shepherd uh, of my people. And then after this, he finishes by saying, now follow me. Uh, th- so, th- you know, th- they are going to bring, they are going to be essentially the emissaries of Jesus uh, yeah. to the world. He kind of predicts Simon's crucifixion there too as well. <clears throat> to, yeah, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. Mm. I mean, stretching out your hands has this double meaning. It's it, it can talk to dependence, but it also is associated with crucifixion. Yeah. And of course, Peter was crucified. That's how he was martyred. Yes. Uh, yeah. He actually refused to be crucified the right way up. He, he, he uh, wanted to be crucified upside, upside down. down. I mean, you know, which again is remarkable given how he shirks that. Initially. You know, shirks that trouble by, mm. you know, and he denies Jesus three times in that case. For him, of all the disciples, to actually go through crucifixion, he's really the one that goes through crucifixion yeah. uh, as well at the end. Is this, uh, you know, it's a pretty amazing journey. Uh, at this point, actually, Peter. Uh, says, well, what about you know? What about John? Because he's again, he's predicted how he's going to you know how he's going to die, and uh, there must have been some. This is a curious moment here. There seems to have been some rumor or whatever going around, at least that John was going to stay alive until Jesus came, came back. back. Because remember, John's writing quite late. Yes, you know, uh, it's about potentially 50 years after. Yeah, about fifty years after, and mm-hmm. and I think people even at that time, are perhaps thinking maybe Jesus is going to come back straight away. Yeah. And maybe a rumor had spread that, you know, that John of the disciples was going to be the one to see the return of Christ. And so John just clears that up, you know, yeah. as he finishes his gospel, uh, yeah. he clears that up. He finishes with these with these words, verse 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So he points out 
because remember, he's added a whole lot of things to the Synoptic Gospels. People at this time would have been familiar with the stories of Jesus. Uh, he's added some elements, but he says at the end, but even what I've added, there's way more even than that. You know, he did so many, uh, so many things. But as he points out earlier, the key theme throughout this gospel is that you may believe in Jesus, the Son of God. All of this is that we might not only believe intellectually, but recognize who Jesus is and put our trust in him as our Lord. Thanks for listening to this episode of Thrive Deeper. Our home on the internet is thrivetoday.tv. You can contact us, ask questions, see all our resources and much more at our website, thrivetoday.tv. We really appreciate the questions and thoughts about what you're reading as we go through the Bible with Thrive. Until next time, our prayer is that these shows will inspire you to go deeper and thrive. Thrive.